0: You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Emily O'Gorman, author of Wetlands and a Dry Land, More Than Human Histories of Australia's Murray-Darling Basin, published this year by the University of Washington Press. Dr. O'Gorman, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, good to be here.
0: So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
1: Sure. Um, So I'm speaking to you from where I live, which is in the Sydney region in the Blue Mountains, uh, which is Darug and Gundungurra country. It's um, the country of the Darug and Gundungurra Aboriginal people. And so this this area, the Blue Mountains, is part of a mountain range in eastern Australia from which water runs into the rivers of the Murray-Darling Basin, which is the focus of the book that um, we're talking about and that I've written. So I just would like to start by acknowledging um, the traditional owners of this country and also to acknowledge that the basin is comprised of the country of 40 different Aboriginal groups and I also pay my respects to Elders past and present. So I'm a senior lecturer at Macquarie University in Sydney uh, which is on Dharug country and I've worked with and within the Murray-Darling River system for quite a long time now, all up more than 15 years. I've actually written another book about it, quite a different book, actually. Um, and this is my second book about this area. It's um, a big place. It's the seventh of Australia, covering uh, quite a number of states, Um in Eastern Australia, and it's um, got a really rich diversity of landscapes and people, which has sort of kept me <laughs> kept me working in the region and, and um, kept me thinking about what this region uh, has to offer our understandings of history, of water, uh, and so on. So it's also a region that's rich in environmental contestations, um, many of which happen between multiple scales, from international to quite local, and I pick up on some of these different contestations within the book, but also areas of cooperation between different groups, particularly around um, wetlands and water. So um, I wrote this book, as I said, it's the second book I've written about this region, and in some ways um, it reflects uh, my changing interest and also my changing thinking in relationship to that first book, uh, and also my continued, I guess, um, learning I, as an academic, we're in this lucky position where we can keep on learning um, all the time. And I started working. I'm a historian by background, so did a PhD in history. And then um, my first book was based on that PhD. Uh, it's about um, changing understandings of floods in this same river system. Um, and the first job I, I got out of my PhD was a postdoc, which was in an interdisciplinary. Center called the Australian um, Centre for Cultural Environmental Research uh, at the University of Wollongong. And that had a lot of geographers in it. And this close engagement with geographers um, changed my thinking, I would say, um, and made me think about the value of history in a different sort of way, but also what historians might learn from interdisciplinary environmental conversations, from the work happening in geography. So this book sort of... Has, has its roots in that um, thinking, which was a while ago, and all of this kept percolating in my mind uh, as I continued to do smaller projects uh, in the basin and then I decided to write this book about wetlands that it tries to bring some of these things together so I guess the book at its core it 's a history of wetlands within this particular river system, uh, the Murray darling basin in Australia, but it aims to show um, what this region can, tr- can contribute to international discussions about history in relation to other fields, in relation to interdisciplinary conversations happening around more than more than human studies, more than human scholarships multi-species studies. Excuse me, um, and also international discussions about water and wetlands in this time of environmental crisis. So. Uh, yeah, it's quite different from my first book, and it try and it's sort of quite explicitly positioned in a fairly interdisciplinary space, while still um, while still looking at, at at history. So it's trying to bring history into into this interdisciplinary space in a different sort of way, I suppose.
0: Okay, and yeah, I appreciate the shout out to Wollongong. There, I spent a semester there uh, many years ago, and they've got a lot of good geographers. <laughs>
1: they do Um, they certainly do yeah
0: okay so the subtitle to your book uses this term more than human and so that's a pretty clear indication of where you're placing yourself in the field of theories about human environment relationships but just to get all of our listeners up to speed could you tell us what more than human means and why you think this is a productive approach for understanding the murley darling basin
1: Sure. Um, So how how can we distill more than human approaches? So I guess in essence these are a set of approaches that have developed over the last couple of decades um, through a transdisciplinary dialogue um, so that um, transdisciplinary dialogue includes scholars from anthropology, geography, really important science and technology studies, um, particularly feminist science and technology studies, uh, philosophy, and a range of other fields. Um, and so, through this dialogue, uh, the I guess the dialogue has shaped a set of interdisciplinary concerns um, that cluster around this uh, more this concept of more than human. Um, scholarship and approaches and I guess related to that multi-species studies um, they uh, have a lot in common I would say. So in general terms this scholarship this interdisciplinary scholarship rejects notions of human exceptionalism uh, that have sort of developed within western traditions and have helped to create a separation um, within western traditions between nature and culture and this division and separation and hyper-separation of nature and culture has uh, at various times come to justify human exploitation of what has been framed as an externalised nature. So instead these more-than-human approaches argue for a richer examination of socio-ecological relationships and that's really important thinking of these things together, socio um, the social and the ecological, the political and the ecological, um, but this can be encapsulated in the term socio-ecological, um, so that these richer e- examinations can more fully account for a diversity of actors and importantly that's the diversity of both human and non-human actors. So, really core to these more than human approaches and multi-species approaches is diversity and multiplicity um, on lots of different levels and um, thinking about human diversity as well as non-human diversity. So one of the really important aspects of these approaches, I think, um, particularly in the way that I have been engaging with them, and I think that's really valuable for historians as well is that um, there's an emphasis on situating, shifting modes of understanding. Um, So it's about the way um, knowledges change over time but also are situated within particular power relationships, within particular um, cultural dynamics, um, sets of values and so on. And that these um, shifting modes of understandings have been used to make sense of... Uh, and inhabit these relationships and so help to co-create the worlds that um, emerge from these more-than-human relationships. Um, so I think this is really useful for historians, for, for everyone <laughs> perhaps engaging with these more-than-human approaches is to think about um, the emphasis that these approaches put on shifting modes of understanding um, that have been formed within specific histories, cultures, and more than human relationships, um, and that they've had particular consequences.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think that all comes through pretty well uh, in your book. So I asked you the first question about the subtitle. Now I want to ask you about the main title of the book. It's called Wetlands in a Dry Land. So. Sure. How does it uh, how does it shape the situation that these areas that you're talking about? These are areas that have uh, a lot of water to them, but they're within a continent that's known for being uh, primarily a desert or arid area.
1: Yeah, ah, uh, yeah. Um, the Murray Darling Basin is a really fascinating place, and water in this basin, and and then the role of wetlands is really. Uh, fascinating as well. So this is a region that's shaped by um, droughts and floods. Um, So uh, dry times are sort of more common, I suppose. Droughts are not unusual in this region. Uh, But then there's these periods, these wetter years, um, where the river system floods. And within this dynamic um, of droughts and floods, Um, wetlands play a really interesting role. So wetlands uh, during drier years are often um, refuges for for animals um, because they hold water for longer um, often depending on the severity of the drought. Um, And I guess in the context of climate change, they're playing a really interesting role where droughts are becoming longer, um, more intense, and the wetlands are in many cases drying out, so they're changing into more terrestrial um, ecosystems, I guess, in those drier periods, which is causing all sorts of problems. So I guess another motivation in writing this book is that that current context of climate change where um, wetlands are um, the role of wetlands is changing, I suppose, and wetlands are changing under this anthropogenic climate change. Um, And I guess uh, I should also emphasise that um, the context of this book is um, the loss of wetlands over not just in this area but around the world. Over the last 300 years, up to 80% of wetlands, as an estimate that ecologists have given, Um, Up to 80% of wetlands around the world have been lost due to um, drainage for uh, urban development, due to um, water diversions for agriculture um, and a whole range of reasons. And most of those wetlands have been lost um, in the 20th century. So when we think about the 20th century, this is a period in which many large dams have been built, many countries invested in large irrigation schemes um, and you think about that post-war era of nation building in many places, where um, all of these projects were really um, were really coming into their own. Um, governments were investing in these as labour schemes uh, for for a whole range of reasons. Uh, all this concern about food security and so on. So the Murray-Darling Basin is interesting because it reflects those international trends in terms of losses of wetlands it's a region that has lost a lot of wetlands it's also a region where in the 20th century there was a lot of emphasis by the federal or national government as well as the state government um, in developing irrigation uh, areas and building large dams there's 105 large dams in the basin so that's dams that um, with a uh, 10 meter or over crest height um, so there's a lot of dams here there's extensive irrigation areas and that they were they really took off in the, the 20th century so that's a focus of my book as well so wetlands in a dry land it's about um in terms of thinking about this place it's about this place is has a lot of things that are really uh unique that uh I think the world can learn from, particularly as we head into um, climate change futures, including issues of water scarcity and how wetlands are changing under those dynamics, but also have changed in the past. This is a place that experienced droughts and floods um, for a long, long time, Um, uh, but also it speaks to international trends. So it's got this, uh, it's both unique and also reflective of some of those global trends as well.
0: Yeah, that's that always makes for a good book when it's unique, but also links to these larger questions.
1: Uh, yeah, I think sometimes when we're writing, uh, and I know this, I know this from my own own work, um, and also thinking about uh, um, maybe uh, national histories more generally, there is this tendency to point out the uniqueness without linking it to the global trends. But there, I mean, you know there are all of these links happening all the time where in this um, yeah in this interesting space where there's the tension or the connections between the the local and the global i suppose yeah
0: yeah so then i want to ask about the structure of the book because this is not kind of a comprehensive overview total history of the the whole basin it's more a a series of case studies of specific places and times and each one has a, a chapter with an action word for a title like leaking and infecting and so i'm curious why you took this approach and how you went about selecting these cases to focus in on for each of these chapters?
1: Yeah, sure, thanks for that question. Um, <laughs> uh, so there's so many different ways I decided to structure it um, this way and I'll try and unpack some of those and, and try and distill them as well. So I guess one, one aspect is that in engaging with more than human approaches and bringing them into conversation with environmental approaches in environmental history as a field, um, one of the things that more than human approaches really emphasize, and when we think about situated knowledges, is that um, is that the grand narrative it tries to break away from a grand narrative, from something um, that has a sort of a sense of a, a, um, a overarching history that tries to be um totalizing in some sense, like, it's not about this is the history of wetlands in this area. this is a history that is uh, and it's sort of trying to situate this as uh, this book as um coming from a particular set of perspectives and a particular set of approaches is trying to situate um I guess myself and my approaches. Uh, in relation to the basin. So it's trying to um, get away from a sense that this is the history, which I don't think many historians um, these days would um, claim <laughs> explicitly. But in taking this structure, I'm trying to um, uh, make that really clear, I suppose. So rather than, than having, um, like, uh, in the beginning, this is what happened, <laughs> and then and then this is all the things that happen, this is the end, I'm taking a more sliced approach um, and that's, yeah, so that that, so that, that situatedness uh, is really clear. The other reason I wanted to take a thematic approach is because throughout the book I'm really interested in a dialogue between the past and the present, so each chapter is about engaging in that dialogue, so it's not just the, the final chapter that brings this book up to the present. Each chapter um, is a dialogue between historical episodes and encounters, um, a human and non-human encounters uh, in relation to the present um, as well. So I wanted to keep that dialogue going and I think also particular chapters try and... Um, and engage with different sorts of temporalities as well. And so having that really um, sim- simplified or, um, or traditional narrative structure didn't work um, for some of the material I was engaging with. So um, I'm thinking particularly of the first chapter, which is uh, written really in conversation with three Aboriginal women from around the Basin uh and I wanted to engage with um you know the different um temporalities happening um in our conversations and particularly in um in engaging with their weaving practices I wanted to bring out um different sorts of um temporalities so that's one reason um or that's maybe two reasons so another reason um, that I've ended up with these particular themes is that actually when I was first starting this book and this was quite a long time ago um, probably about five or six years ago when I was first thinking about this book and sketching out a chapter structure I actually had the structures chap- uh, the cha- <laughs> excuse me the chapters structured Um, around particular uh, animals or plants. So that was my idea, that each chapter would engage with particular animals and plants. And I was then at the Rachel Carson Centre for Environment and Society in Munich, which is a wonderful place where scholars from around the world gather who are in, in the environmental humanities and um, I was workshopping this structure with some people and one person in particular, Celia Lowe, an anthropologist um, in the US, oh, from the US, um, then at the Carson Centre, said, um, I think the more important thing here is processes and maybe think about uh, structuring your book around processes and this stayed with me. So I continued and I didn't wanna give up the animal plant structure. So I kept thinking, well, how can, how can I bring these together? Should I focus on processes? Should I focus on particular animals and plants? And I kept thinking about it, kept reading and developing my thinking about more than human approaches and scholarships. And of course, um, scholarship in that field kept happening um, and moving on. And so I thought, well, I think the best way for me to structure this is actually around um, concepts and processes that draw attention to sets of relationships because more than human approaches are really about sets of relationships. It's not about the humans and non-humans. It's about more than human sets of relationships that include human humans and non-humans. So that's um, why I decided on a set of... These terms. The the process of deciding which terms in specifically was long (laughs) and dynamic. So and these changed over time as I kept working and I kept refining them, um, kept talking to people in the basin as well. So I ended up, um, for example, uh, focusing one of the chapters on the um, enclosing of wetlands as I talked more to Aboriginal people in the Basin about issues of access to wetlands. And so that is how that took shape and that um, was sort of in dynamic dynamic relationship with people I was speaking to, with the archives I was working on. Um, yeah, so it's it was a long process of refining them um, and it was also – I see it as sort of as I also focus on some terms that I thought were um, were sort of under emphasized in the work i was I was reading um, about this region that I thought was really important, um, and also in thinking about wetlands generally. so I guess, you know, we were talking about the connections between the local and the global and every everything on that spectrum, so you've, you've got a whole range of scales happening there, um, and I tried to um, focus on terms that drew attention to those sets of connections as well that were relevant not only to what was happening in the basin, and they all are, um, but also that were relevant to histories um, and futures, I think, too, of wetlands more generally, um, in many places. So it was a dynamic process of of refining my thinking about these terms, and it, it actually took a long time. And some of them cha- were changing right up to um, right right up to the submission of the manuscripts. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but um, yeah, it it was. I thought very carefully. I should say about these terms, yeah.
0: Okay. okay. So, to sure. give you, uh, to give our listeners uh, a little bit of a taste of what some of these more in-depth uh, case study chapters are, are like, I want to ask you a very important question, which is: Do ducks eat rice? Uh, and <laughs> why is that such a, a complicated and controversial question in the Murray-Darling Basin?
1: Do ducks eat rice. Well. Well, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> um, yeah, so ducks are really interesting in the in the basin. I think they're uh, they um, deceptively uh, they're deceptively simple simple folks, and I say that because I don't think they are simple, but I think they're they're so um, common that that people overlook them. They're actually quite complex, interesting um, characters. So ducks in the In the basin, (laughs) Um, uh, look. I mean, one of the many reasons they're interesting is that they're uh, they're not migratory. I should say. So, um, a lot of ducks around the world are migratory. The ducks in North America are migratory, um, at least many of them, in my understanding. And in Australia, because of um, these changes in Um, dry and wet conditions the ducks instead of following seasons they follow the water around so they go to where the water is so their um, ecologists call them nomadic rather than migratory Uh, and so one of the places the ducks um, followed water to was the rice growing areas in the Murrumbidgee irrigation area which is in the basin it's the Murrumbidgee River is part of the Murray River system uh, and it's the irrigation areas in New South Wales, the state and of New South Wales, and rice started to be grown in that irrigation area in the 1920s, and ducks started turning up in these rice fields really quickly. Um, the first year rice was grown there, and rice, of course. Um, Well, this rye, the varieties that were being grown there, um, were grown in uh, flooded bays. So they almost created this sort of wetland environment. And that, you know, we've got rice there, which is semi aquatic plants. Um, And so the ducks come in and they um, they, uh, are attracted to these fields um, or attracted to these places because. there's nesting material and there's potentially food. But there is this controversy about whether ducks were actually eating the rice. So soon after the ducks turned up, the farmers uh, started um, noticing damage in their crops and they um, asked the state government to investigate the um, whether the ducks were causing this damage and also whether they were eating rice. So some farmers said that they saw ducks eating rice uh, and, um, and the state government investigated basically um, and actually there was a series of investigations spanning from the 1920s right through. I think there were still some investigations happening in the 1980s uh, and this controversy sort of, um, has kept going. So th- the controversy is really that the people doing the investigations, the scientists um, who were different scientists um, across this, this series of years, uh, claimed that the ducks weren't doing this damage. Um, and in fact, the earliest, one of the scientists doing the earliest investigation um, thought that the farmers were feeding ducks rice and sending them off um, to Sydney to his uh, to his offices, where he would dissect them. Um, so he thought it was the that the farmers were that knew that the ducks weren't eating rice, but were wanting a special uh, open season on ducks in the area, um, so that they could get uh, hunters up from Victoria. Um, who would pay then to hunt the ducks on the rice growing area. So it's quite a complicated set of circumstances. The farmers were adamant the ducks were doing damage. Um, and later on, uh, as – so I should say many of the farmers um, were were new to farming. They were recruited from the state government to come to this irrigation area to start farms, but they often had very little farming experience. And it's uh, – a part of a much bigger history in Australia about uh, uh, getting um, people from particular backgrounds, particularly European people, um, onto small-scale farms, which would have a sort of civilising benefit, um, but they often didn't have farming backgrounds. So as the farmers got more experience uh, and new irrigation areas sprung up, in some of those newer irrigation areas um later on those farmers started saying ducks were doing damage but in the more established farms where farmers had more experience um, the ducks weren't such an issue anymore and so this this question comes out about well maybe the maybe it was the farming practices so one of the ideas was that if you if you sow a field as a farmer um, but the or, or a paddy rather um, but the paddy's not even or um, you haven't uh, sown the the rice grains properly, um, you'll get poor germination, which creates um, areas where there's no rice, which means the ducks come and settle there because there's open space and then they keep swimming in the paddy and push the other rice down. Um, yeah, but one I guess one of the other things in terms of ducks eating rice is um, farmers – wrote testimonials to the scientists um, saying from the earliest uh, times um, of concern that they were having over ducks doing damage uh, that the water was spreading across the, the rice bays um, and, and ducks were in front of the water eating the the rice grains and so on. So there's these eyewitness accounts of ducks eating grains. The scientists thought the ducks were being blamed for damage, that other birds were being were actually doing. They thought that the crows were actually eating the rice. So it's very, um, yeah, it's very hard to know. I can't answer that question of whether ducks eat rice or not because, <laughs> because there's very different um, accounts and it's one of the really interesting controvers- controversies around around ducks. Yeah. Um, and it continues, you know, there there are still special open seasons declared on ducks in these areas with the idea that they're damaging rice. Um, yeah, so it's a damaging rice crop. So it's a, um, yeah, it's an ongoing set of issues, I would say.
0: Yeah, I feel like we sometimes learn the most about a situation and the the full uh, system when there is a a basic question like, are the ducks eating the rice that we can't (laughs) answer? But we see how everybody goes about trying to answer it and what the the effects of those attempted answers are.
1: Um, Mm. I should say that, yeah, these attempted answers created huge archives. (laughs) Mm which is basically what I, I draw on um, in the book. And it's sort of part of the reason the book started is that um, I, I was research, researching um, the use of water in and histories of use of water in rice growing in these areas. And there were these massive archives on um, water and rice growing, but there were just as big of files on ducks in these areas. So that... that um, piqued my interest I suppose thinking well what's going on with these ducks here and so in a lot of ways that led me down the path into this into this book and how can we explain these sets of relationships and these controversies and these situated um, different knowledges uh, that are bound up in cultural and political um, contexts as well and they change over time those contexts of course
0: All right, so to shift focus a little bit, uh, your book really foregrounds the role of Indigenous Australians and their relationship to country. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you went about positioning yourself in relationship to the Indigenous communities and nations that live in the areas that you're writing about.
1: Sure. Um, So I have been incredibly... um, lucky to meet some really wonderful people in the course of this research um, and that I- includes and really importantly includes um, a bunch of really wonderful um, Aboriginal women who I should say are really crucial to the way um, this book has taken shape. So yeah. Um, I guess in terms of positioning, I have learned a lot. Is my positioning is one of learning, and I've learned a lot from the um, Aboriginal women who I've met, and also the Aboriginal men I have met as well. Um, So, in the course of writing this book, I was travelling to particular areas and meeting people, and over the course of that time, I formed relationships with people um and made friends with people in fact um including um aboriginal people who i then um have written cha- some chapters uh in conversation with in different ways um and who and as i've have said have sort of informed the approach to the book um overall so uh, there's Um, so many uh, how can I answer this question because I feel like it's um, it's been so crucial and important to this book some of the people and the conversations I've had with them Um, so perhaps to give an example um, one of the Aboriginal women who's been really important to this book is um, Danielle Carney flaqua who's a well woman whose country includes the beautiful Macquarie Marshes, uh, which is part of the Darling River system. And we um, first met and have known of Danielle for a long time because she has been really senior in different water management positions in New South Wales and um, and in Aboriginal cultural heritage positions in New South Wales as well. Uh, and environmental conservation. Uh, So I've known of her for a really long time and uh, there was a conference um, happening at Macquarie University on wetlands and myself and someone else organising a session, my co-organiser, we invited Danielle to come and talk about some of the work she was doing out at the Macquarie Marshes in terms of cultural burning um, of the wetlands uh, which needed to happen in concert with um, dam releases, uh, water, water releases from dams which um, flow down to the marshes. So we invited her to come and speak um, and following the conference, uh, which included environmental scientists as well and was in fact run by environmental scientists, um, who, who work on the Macquarie Marshes, um, so a group of us who had been at the conference went to the marshes. Um, so Danielle had come to Sydney to give this talk and then we were going to her country and she um, came and met us and um, spoke to us about the marshes and um, told us so much about the Whale well, and history of the area and that was a really um, wonderful experience, very privileged experience to um, listen to Danielle. Um, and through that, we started a, a conversation. So, I, um, Danielle, um, and my, uh, Danielle, and Danielle my, and my conversations, particularly about weaving with sedges from the marshes, is a really strong aspect of the first chapter, which focuses on weaving. Um, but also picks up issues of access to wetlands, water politics of wetlands, um, but also intergenerational um, knowledge uh, and so on. So that's really important to that chapter. But that chapter is one part of a of a bigger set of conversations Danielle and I are having. So we're also working on a another project um, which is about well when, Women's knowledge, which Danielle um, had already initiated, and was bringing me in as a historian to think or to revisit colonial archives and see what is in there. Reading against the grain, rereading colonial archives for and women's knowledges. So, I guess, yeah. So my um, engagement with Aboriginal. People in the basin is one of learning. It's of reciprocity, and this book is is one part of a whole lot of other um, things that I'm doing with um, and collaborations that I'm that I'm having. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that completely answers your your question, Stentor.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's good, um, and so I think we've given our listeners a, a pretty good idea of what to expect if they pick up this book. So I'd like to close out our interview by asking you what you're working on next. What kind of projects are you taking up now that this book is out?
1: Ah, so I guess I've already hinted at some of that, which is um, through this book, I have, um, I have started or. Well, become involved in, um, co-created a bunch of collaborations with different people. So that includes collaborating with Danielle. It also um, includes a collaboration with uh, some colleagues at Macquarie uh, University who are geographers, um, environmental scientists at the University of Canberra and Gomorrah Camilleroy custodians whose country includes the Gwida wetlands. Um, and we're doing we're doing a collaboration that's really centred on uh, enabling healthier um, country uh, in in Gomeroi country, focusing on the Guaida wetlands and a few other sites as well. Um, and that project has been um, co-created and is and is being led really by Gomeroi camilleroy custodians. So um, along with those collaborative projects. I am starting into the next big, big um, sort of book project as well, which is uh, going to focus on, and this may change, of course, um, is going to focus on international wetlands conservation. So one of the things I became really interested in while I was working on this book is post-war environmental and wetlands conservation and just to background that, one of the things I looked into while I was doing this book is this category of wetlands. How, because as I was reading through this book, uh, reading through the archives and reading through various sources, I um I was noticing, you know, that that wetlands only starts to emerge as a as a term really um, in the international arena in the 60s and 70s. It's used a little longer in the, the US, um, but it gathers this international Um, uh, usage in the second half of the 20th century and is laden with values of conservation. So this idea of this concept and category of wetlands is really about reframing, um, you know, swamps, marshes and so on as these miasmic places into wetlands, which are places worth conserving. So I've become really interested in this post-war era of wetlands conservation um and particularly why did wetlands become a focus of international environmental conservation what is it about them that made them um this be taken up in these these international arenas so that is what i'm i'm starting into
0: all right well we will be looking forward to that in the coming years here so uh, dr o'gorman thank you so much for coming on the show
1: Thank you very much, Dintar.
0: You just heard a conversation with Emily O'Gorman, author of Wetlands in a Dry Land, More Than Human Histories of Australia's Murray-Darling Basin, published this year by the University of Washington Press.